Welcome back to the Defining Endurance Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Andrew Simmons, and today we're going to talk about myths, half-truths, and misunderstandings about the weight room, and really about what does it mean to strength train as a runner. If you've been in this game for a long enough time, you're probably going to see yourself in the weight room a little bit more than you have in the past. Whether you're struggling with injuries or trying to gain a performance benefit, in the last 15 years, we've seen a transition from endurance athletes never walking past a weight or a dumbbell, and now we're starting to see them using circle bands, getting out of the squat rack, and doing a whole lot more in terms of activation, potentiation, and really moving weight around. Well, I brought the right guy in. I brought in John Eric Kawamoto. He owns JK Conditioning in St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada, and fun fact, we have actually shared an athlete. Uh, this athlete uh, it was both a marathon and half marathon runner, and it was phenomenal to see that when you combine coaching and focused coaching and focused strength and conditioning, what you can do for athletes. Now, John and I really sit down and dive into a conversation about one, why is it actually important to have certification? And what are those certifications? What does it really mean to be a kinesiologist? What does it mean to have your CSCS? Then we really dive into some of these myths and half-truths and these misunderstandings about, you know, do we actually build bulk as runners when we go into the weight room? And how can we fix and really shift the understanding of athletes? So I really want you guys to buckle in for this one. It's phenomenal to sit down with John Eric um, and really just get through some of the tough stuff and hopefully break up all of those misunderstandings that you guys have as far as should you be in the weight room? Well, let's make that plain and simple. Absolutely. Without further ado, let's dive in to today's episode. Welcome to Defining Endurance, a podcast focused on providing actionable insights for endurance athletes. Whether you're an athlete just getting started in endurance sports or a veteran looking to gain an edge, the Defining Endurance podcast is here to ask curious questions with athletes and fitness professionals. And most importantly, dive deep on current training topics so you can become the best version of yourself. Let us wait no longer. Let's dive into this week's episode. All right, guys, welcome back or welcome to the Defining Endurance podcast. I'm your host, Coach Andrew Simmons. And my guest today, John Eric Kawamoto. John uh, comes uh, quite far away, uh, all the way, all the way over in Canada. Uh, John, welcome. Hey, Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing great, man. So you're uh, you're not just uh, up in Canada to our, our neighbor to the north. You're also our neighbor all the way over in the east. Where are you located? Yeah. So right now, um, my wife and I live in St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada, which uh, is the furthest east you can get in Canada. It's also got the weirdest time zone I've ever had to work with. There's an extra half hour. We have our own time zone. You do have your own time zone. It it definitely we do. It definitely threw me off. Um, but to to give a little bit of background um, on John, um, you know, he's a guy that I've I've actually personally had an opportunity to work with. We shared a client. Um, you know, probably about three or four years ago. Um, and that, right. that, that client, uh, you know, wouldn't stop raving about you. And what was great is I started writing a few articles for Podium Runner. And I was like, man, I 
feel like I know this name from somewhere. And where did I know this guy from? And I, it clicked in my brain one day and I'm like, I should really sit down and talk with this guy because I think we, we've got some alignments here that might be really fun and make for a really good episode. So do you want to give uh, the people a little bit of background on you know your formal training before we kind of dive into your focus in running and strength training? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. So um, I have a bachelor's and a master's in kinesiology, and I've been a kinesiologist and a strength and conditioning coach and a personal trainer, whatever title you want to go with. I've been doing that for over 15 years. I love that. And I think there's a lot to be said about that CSCS that I don't think a lot of people know. It is not yeah. it is not easy to acquire. My wife also has her CSCS. Um, and it it has a, a certain air about it. It is not, um, it is not yeah. just an easy, you know, certified personal trainer, not saying that that's easy either, but on all scales, that one's usually right up there. Yeah. There's different, you know, there's different routes that, that trainers can take if they want to get into the industry. And when I was getting into the industry a long time ago, um, I kept seeing the CSCS after, uh, people's names in magazine articles. And I was like, what's, what's that stand for? So when I was finishing up my kin degree, I was like, that's what I want. I want to get this certified strength and conditioning specialist designation, because if those guys have it, I want that because in the future, I want to be them. Uh, so that's actually how I sort of came across the uh, National Strength and Conditioning Association and their, their, their coaching designation as CSCS. Yeah. And, and I think what I want a lot of people to know that aren't in the strength and conditioning world or, you know, don't know the inner workings of like the uh, NSCA and things like that, um, you know, the CSCS is required by majority for any strength coach that's going to mm -hmm. coach at the collegiate level, um, you know, at an absolute must at any high level program. Um, and on top of that, there's usually a specialization. Um, and, you know, it's actually fairly rigorous to keep your CSCS up. It usually requires, uh, you know, multiple CEUs every year, um, along with some travel and going in and being a part. You actually have to really physically be in um, in that world quite a bit. You can't just get your NGB, your National Governing Body certification, and then just kind of like stop, you know, taking yeah, care of it. Yeah. yeah, you can't. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, this is really cool, man. I'm excited to sit down and kind of dive into this. Um, you know, when it comes down to it, living, living, you know, on an Island, uh, you know, how do you, mm -hmm. what is your main client base? You know, you can't just all be runners. It's not a, it's not a huge place. No. Well, um, 500,000. <laughs> not bad. That's, that's kind of our, uh, population on this side. And, um, we, so our, so my gym, so I own JK conditioning with my wife and it's a, it's a private training facility here in St. John's, right in the center, center of the city. And uh, our primary clientele that we migrate towards and that, that client migrates to us is just your gen pop. So your general population, um, myself and my staff really enjoy working with this type of population because usually they're super motivated to change their health, to improve in their fitness and they want to use strength training, traditional strength training as a means to doing that. So our sort of average clientele would be anywhere. It's kind of a range, but anywhere from like, say, 30, 30 years old to, you know, our oldest client right now is 74. Mm. Um, but I would say maybe the average would be like 55. So anyone sort of in that sort of age range that is just your, you know, they might 
be a physician, they might own their own business, they might be semi-retired or fully retired, but that's the type of clientele that we work with on a day-to-day basis. Excellent. And so, you know, I've seen from you again on the internet, and this is our first time actually getting a face-to-face together, you write mm-hmm. a lot about running and you write yes. about lot, a lot about runners. So when for you did it become kind of a, oh, I actually like specializing and focusing a little bit more on the running population? What got you keyed into that? I ran track and field and cross country and road races in high school and university. Uh, so I went to Simon Fraser and uh, was on the track and cross country team there. Um, so I started running and that's where I met my wife. And that's where I really spent a lot of my sort of like time, um, you know, being active in high school and university. So I really got into running and I did it competitively for nine years. Um Compared to what you just said with your your high school team, uh, that you, the athletes that you were coaching, I was nowhere near that fast. But uh, I have a I don't, I'd say a, a slightly respectable 10k of 32:15 uh, in the Vancouver Sun Run and back in 2007, and then I've run a 15:12 uh, 5k uh, 5 5k on the road. So those are sort of my best from way back in the day. But I've I've sort of sort of retired from the racing scene, um, but still sort of stay heavily into. Uh, running with regards to research and uh, courses and books that come out because I have this passion of combining strength training and running and and helping runners become faster and and become sort of like a, a new version of themselves that they never thought they could with running alone. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's been a a, a foundational change uh, in a lot of ways for for clients. You know, I, I have one client in particular in Switzerland. And I was like, dude, I, I promise you, like, if you can make, you know, two hours a week and go, even if it's a personal trainer, you know, if I, if I can give it to you as a coach at home, it's great. It was very hard for him to be compliant. There was a lot of other distractions. And it's also about, you know, making sure we get the form right, making sure that we get, you know, all of the subtle little pieces that if you've never spent time in a weight room are way more important than just stacking plates on the bar uh, you know, right. The, the, the movement and, and doing it, you know, both with grace, but also with power. Um, and I, and I, and I told this client, I said, I promise that it will change fundamentally how you run. He's a mountain runner and he's like, all right, I'll give a, I'll give it six weeks. And in those six weeks, it, he'd been an athlete that for the last two years, you know, we couldn't really build him up. He couldn't manage you know, much beyond like 35 or 40 miles a week. And if you're training for, you know, his goal races were always 30, 50, wanted to try and hit that hundred K mark was, had dreamed of running a hundred miles. I'm like, dude, on 35 miles a week, we just can't do that. Like you, we have to find a sustainable way. And it was no matter how slowly we built up, how many days we took off in between or tried to periodize, it was a lack of strength and a lack of ability to move. And so what I'm really loving is that, you know, through the connected world of social media now, we're starting to see a lot more people that are kind of taking the what's typical strength world. And I think we'll kind of talk a little bit about that. What a lot of people see is like building muscle and mass mm. and transferring that into a sport that is very afraid in many ways of adding mass and things. So I'm really curious to kind of see and understand from you, um, you know, are do you use your strength and conditioning to solve issues or are you mostly just trying to kind of uh you know give athletes that that boost in fitness 
A bit of both. Um, I have a lot of runners um, that sort of come to me one or two ways. They come to me injured or they come to me fine and they want to get faster. So when it's there, there's a definitely, um, you know, a bit of mystery solving when the client comes to you with an injury, but at the same time, there's still a bit of mystery solving when a client comes to you and they're healthy, but maybe they move in a inefficient movement pattern that you still need to sort of solve and figure out why, because you can't just throw squats and deadlifts at a runner. You have to kind of figure out how they move first and then teach them how to do the fundamental, fundamental movement pattern of a, a single leg squat or a, a hip hinge movement that would be categorized as a deadlift or a single leg deadlift. And then after sort of assessing how they move, then you can sort of prescribe exercises that would suit their current self or their, their current ability. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we've found is, you know, we do strength and conditioning both for runners, but also on our high school side is that people develop inefficiencies that kind of scotch tape them together. And I've even found that mm -hmm. As we can add strength and conditioning, sometimes the underlying injury will present itself in a different way and be like, that's actually now that's what we need to address more than anything. Um, so, you know, do you, do you look at this as more of like a physical therapy and you're, you're looking at it as, as therapy, or are you always looking at it from a performance perspective and trying to always kind of elicit a, you know, this is, this is a running specific movement, or are you saying, you know, uh, we've got a hip imbalance here and we're going to attack that first. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I try not to be too clinical and I try not to be a therapist that sort of works outside of its scope. So if someone comes to me with an injury, I might put them through an assessment to figure out, like I said, how they move and where their limitations are, whether they might have an ankle dorsiflexion range of motion issue or a hip internal rotation issue and look at it from a non-running perspective to get a sense of why they could be feeling the pain that they're feeling. But then what you need to do is sort of combine the assessment of how they walk and how they run, and then sort of combine the two, mm. and then sort of piece together different uh, sort of uh, assessments to figure out why they could be you know, suffering from what they're suffering from. Um, so like I said, I, I try not to be too clinical, but I'll, I'll, I'll approach it from a, a strength and conditioning perspective and figure out movement quality. And then at the, at the end of the day, it's always going to be performance and how you perform also, not just, uh, you know, on the road or the track, but like, how do you perform your workouts? How do you look when you do a squat? How do you look when you do a deadlift? Are there major compensations that are happening that you're super unaware of? So it's it's kind of a combination of all, but like I said, I don't want to be too clinical, but it's it's also looking at it from a a sort of different perspectives of prehab, rehab, you know, performance, and then combining it all together so that the runner can get where they want to get to. But it does take several sort of assessments to figure out, you know, why they're feeling what they're feeling. You know, on average, I think, you know, I my biggest goal in this podcast is to always try and give applicable information, things that people can apply. If you're, you know, your average client, when they hire you, you know, and, and again, this is, this is a very broad question. And so I'm not trying to put you on the frying pan here by any means, but, you know, I, I think one of the misconceptions we, we both deal with as a coach and both as, as a trainer um, and, and someone that does strength and conditioning, how long do you think someone should expect to show up for strength and conditioning, maybe number of sessions and things before they can actually start to see a quantifiable result, whether that's 
feeling an improvement in pain um, and or just seeing it, seeing the results show up in their sport of choice? With, with training, depending on how, if they've been training before, so in the gym, so if they've been training before in the gym and maybe their form wasn't as good um, to someone who's like never really done anything in the gym before the first time they've ever been to a gym is to be in the gym with me and have an assessment. They could be 55 years old. I've, I've seen, I, I've, I've had clients tell me three to four weeks into training twice a week of, of, of weights, nothing crazy, just maybe 45 minutes to an hour per session. And I would give them a little bit of homework throughout the week so that they could sort of follow a couple guidelines. Um, I'll have clients tell me that they'll notice something change in their running within a, in that amount of time. And obviously the answer is it depends. It depends on the person. Sure. It depends on how often they're training. It depends on how often they're running. If they came to me super injured or if they came to me super healthy. I, I've seen as early as three to four weeks, people like, I never felt like this before when I run. I feel a lot lighter in my feet. My stride length just feels like it's naturally slightly longer. And it's just the ease of running is easier. Yeah. And they haven't been running. So they're super confused because they're like, I didn't add more mileage. I don't, I don't know. Like why, why should, why am I faster? And it's, 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 it's a great moment because they, it's at that moment that they appreciate strength and conditioning. And they realize what it can do for them. And they realize like, wow, it's only been three or four weeks. What happens if I do this for six months? What if it happens, what happens if I do it for a year? You know? So it's, it's, it's that, uh, that moment there that you sold it to them. They're like, I don't need to sell this to you anymore. You'll do exactly what I say whenever I say it. And unfortunately, sometimes it does take that amount of time for someone to realize like, I've never done waste before. I hate going to the gym. I just want to run. Why do I have to go to the gym? But when, when you, when you, when they can feel the experience change when they run, that's when you sold it to them. Absolutely. And I think that's the hardest thing, you know, as, as a business owner is that how do we can that moment, you know, as, as coach and as athletes, you know, how do we can that moment when we start to believe it and see it? You know, I can tell people over and over again that, you know, yeah. following a regular training plan where they're not always going as hard as they possibly can every single run and they have some disparity in their training. How do, how do you, you know, it's like, oh man, I want to sell that. I want to sell that moment yeah. when you realize that, you know, me giving you permission to take an off day and things like that, when you have that, like, when I can take ownership of that for you and for you as a coach to have that moment where they're like, this has changed everything I've done. The number one reaction I always get is I wish I would have done this sooner, <laughs> you totally. know? Yeah. And so I, I'll make this a blanket statement. I'm sure you'll, you'll agree with me, John is um, if you're considering it at all, period, do it, mm-hmm. you know, go, go get that coach. Totally do it. And, you know, um, I know from, from your standpoint too, you've got some great resources out there that we'll get to at the very end, but I wanted to use this podcast and our time today to kind of talk through and maybe kind of do a little, uh, kind of breaking down of some things that I, I have found to be misconceptions, even when I'm trying to get my athletes to get into the gym and to get into the weight room. Um, you know, so what what issues first of all do you tend to deal with the most when it comes to to your to your runners that you're working with what are the big 3 that you see uh you mean sort of like injuries that they may come with, come to me with or just issues with regards to getting in the gym in the first place or i would say by majority you know what where i think most people are kind of struggling um is 
They may have an issue with their gait. They may have an issue with having some pain. Um, Mm -hmm. And they're trying to figure out how do I solve this issue? And as a coach, I want to see them, you know, get it more involved in, in, in the weight room because when you have like just regular soft tissue therapy and, you know, you're going and getting regular massages or you're getting dry needling done, like mm-hmm. that's great. That may kind of relieve the pain or kind of mask that pain for a handful of days and kind of, you know, again, scotch tape you together. Um, but I personally believe that therapy and strength training need to go alongside your running, um, mm-hmm. you know, as 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 not just as a, a nice supplement to have, it's a necessary part of uh, keeping an athlete at a sustainable level of continuous fitness. And so what I'm mm-hmm. curious to understand from you is when you have athletes come in, you know, are they by majority coming in a little bit injured to you or are they always looking for performance? Where do you find yourself most as a coach? Yeah, unfortunately, it's uh, with runners, it's it's usually always a bit too late they'll always come to you or they'll always come to me with some sort of pain Mm. or some sort of discomfort that prevents them from running the amount that they want to run. And that could be anything from hip pain, knee pain, ankle pain, calf tightness, lateral ankle tightness, um, you know, groin pain, hip flexor pain, anything pelvis and down. They, if whatever their gait presents with, then, you know, that might dictate where the pain will be felt. And with runners having, we already said that they're not really inclined to going to the gym. They just want to run. And, you know, once runners start to get that runner's high and they, they get a sense of what it feels like to run consecutively and run more, I find that runners just want to run more. And they don't really know if they don't have a coach, they don't really know how much to add when to take off days, when to add intensity, when to add volume, and then when to adjust those as they get closer to their race. So, you know, there's a lot of free programs online that you can find that will, you know, train you to run a 5K, train you to run a 10K, do your first 10, do your first half. And it can be good. um, But with those programs, they don't really account for the individual and they don't account for how you're responding to training. So the long answer is, They'll do that type of program that isn't catered to them, but then start having issues. But they like running so much that they don't kind of really respond to the issue. They leave it for a while and then they get injured and they can't run what they want to run or they can't follow the program that they want to follow. So it's by that point there that I'll be contacted as a kinesiologist or a strength coach and be like, hey, you know, like I got this race coming up in about two months. I can't get this mileage that I need to do. I got this knee thing that started and I just can't get rid of it. Help me. Absolutely. It's funny because uh, they they stay super disciplined. You know, I, I see this with athletes is that they'll stay super disciplined to a plan, to a fault, and they don't take that discipline that they have in their running and apply it to going to the gym, even though that may be the thing that will absolutely solve the problem for them. Hmm. But it's, it's the, it's, it's a discipline, right? It's this loss aversion. Well, if I don't go run, I'm not moving my training forward. And like, you know, I, I wanted to kind of talk through today, like the three biggest misconceptions, I would say misconception number one that I think we both see as, you know, kinesiologist and trainer, but also as coach is, um, Yes, strength training is in the direction of your running. It absolutely is. The mm-hmm. The biggest misconception there is that if I spend time in the gym, um, I'm going to lose running fitness. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, you know, it's um, 
obviously runners would know this by now is maybe they won't, but like, if you got to, if you want to run faster, you got to run more, mm-hmm. right? So you got to get your mileage up and you have to add in your workouts, you know, your, your intervals, your fart licks, your long runs, your recovery runs. Obviously that's super important in getting you faster at running because the, you know, the specificity, excuse me, the spe- specificity principle states that you need to do what you're training uh, at to be better at the sport that you're, you know, you're, you're targeting. So like you said, if they feel like they, if they don't run, they're going to miss out mm-hmm. on their training. The running is, is such a unique sport in the sense that strength training actually adds to that. And it's not going to take away from your running. You might have sore legs, you know, when you start a, a training program. And obviously the goal of a strength conditioning program for a runner isn't just to make yourself sore. It's to do things in a smart way to make you feel better when you run. But it's initially that sort of that that zone where running does make you a little bit sore when you're doing it for the first time. But as you sort of get accustomed to it, that's when you start feeling the benefits when you're running because your legs aren't so tired. And, you know, you can you can actually feel the difference in the, the positive impact that strength training will have for you. But, um, yeah, that's that's a super important piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And I and I think, you know, you you bring back to a point that I've made a couple times uh, on this podcast is that there's, there's a distinct difference between training and working out. You know, I think a lot of people, you know, they, they've also seen kind of the ugly side of strength and conditioning. Um, And I'm not here to throw CrossFit under the bus. That's not the goal of Mm. this, but you, we see programs and we see a lot of things that the, the point is, you know, when you're working out, you're, a workout is something that is hard and it is directionless and it may hit the whole body. Sure. That's not training. That's, that's, you're not right. training cause you're not training for anything. It's directionless, right? You could show up one day mm-hmm. and you could be doing hang cleans, uh, you know, and pull-ups. Uh, and then the next day, you know, it's, it's all lower body and core. Uh, and then it's right back to upper body the next day. And it's like, that's working out. And that's great if you, you know, you're focused on physique and all of those yeah. other things. There is absolutely has a place. But if totally. as a runner wrong with it. as a runner, I love I love that you stated the specificity principle because it, it needs to get more specific and our sport demands it. It's the reason that we don't just go and run uh easy every single day. Because we have to make our training more specific to the demands of what we're gonna encounter on race day. Just Definitely. as you said. Um, so I, I really appreciate that, but it really kind of brings out that, that under that, that other, I think kind of lingering misconception. And I think we can dive into, I'll ask you your number two here, but I think kind of added on to that first one is that, uh, there's a distinct difference between training and working out, um, mm-hmm. from your point of view, what do you see kind of as the number two misconception that runners either battle starting a workout program or maybe, uh, on the outside looking in what's, what's the number two thing that you think that that you see a lot of runners say and and their mind is changed when they start doing those programs. It's definitely the concept that by picking up a weight, you'll immediately build muscle and become too bulky and have unwanted mass. Mm -hmm. And, um, (laughs) believe me, I wish it was that easy, you know, but, uh, uh, you know, when you have the goal of building muscle, but it's, uh, it's really common, unfortunately with social media and, you know, the internet and you know tv you you see all these super jacked bodies and you know you don't know how they got there whether it was 
what type of weight program they were on, if they were doing any performance enhancing drugs, you know, obviously steroids or anything like that. You don't know any of that. And there's a place and time for that. If people want to do that, that's totally up to them. But when we put running in its own category, specific strength training for running will not make you big. It'll not build your muscles and you'll, you'll build strength, right? We want to build strength. That's the whole point of a runner doing strength training. And you will feel that when you run and, you know, there's, there's other sort of things that we can talk about that would make up a strength training program for a runner. But that, that's the biggest sort of number two thing is like, oh, I don't want to get big. I don't want to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't want to look like I have these huge shoulders and, you know, I don't want to run all weird because I have all this muscle now. And uh, unfortunately, I'll tell all the runners now, it's not easy to build muscle. There's so many steps that need to be uh, taken and there's so many um, training parameters that need to point you into the direction of building muscle. So I'll make you comfortable in the idea that you just take those training parameters and you turn the arrow towards strength training for running. And you will kind of veer off the path of building muscle and you will build strength and feel better when you run. I promise. Yeah, absolutely. I think the two biggest things in that direction that I, I have to, you know, kind of assuage in terms of fears um, are is number one, when I tell people like, if you want to get huge, big muscles, you also have to eat in that same yeah. way for that. Like that's, that's a very specific diet that goes along with building a large amount of muscle and you have to train in a very specific way for that to happen. It's not like you're actually going to accidentally going to all of a sudden yeah. turn into a bodybuilder by doing three sets of 10 squats. This is not, it's just not going to happen. That's a very specific thing. But I think yeah. also with that, like what, what I want people to understand is that when we talk strength training for runners and we talk muscles, we're mostly talking about muscular control and like bilateral control of being able to control, like, as you mentioned, a single leg squat, one of the most important things that, you know, or even a split stance squat that a runner can do. And it's about maintaining control not having that knee, you know, move in and out and being able to like, have a control and control over your body, but also understanding where you are in space. That's such an important part of it. That has nothing to do with physique. It has nothing to do yeah. with, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger level muscles. Yeah, so totally. that's, that's, I think what, where the big misconception is, is that again, what is it specific? Because building huge mm -hmm. muscles isn't specific. Not to running. No, <laughs> no, definitely not. Definitely not. Um, no. And anything else in that direction that you see that you you kind of see in terms of of fears that fall in line with with that misconception? Um, for fears, that's that's sort of the main one is just building unwanted mass um, and 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 sort of thinking that the the process is a lot easier than than it is, and it's not. It's super difficult, and a lot of people go years and years and years trying to look like that. and it does it doesn't just happen overnight and you won't accidentally build a quad muscle that's too big. It's just not the way science works. So we can sort of hopefully put that fear to rest and, and say like, okay, well, I got that behind me. So what's the next thing I need to learn about strength training, which is what we'll get into, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's put a nail in this coffin. What's that last misconception that you feel like you you deal with, whether that's uh, you know from runners in terms of strength training or even just kind of uh, from from that client on the outside looking in? Here's a good one. I think that most people 
might have this sort of misconception and it's they think they need to lift a lot of weight to get to what they want that's great and um you don't need so there's all these research lately in the strength training industry for running and it says that you know if you lift sets of five so if you pick a weight that's challenging for five reps then you'll build strength and there's this sort of way of looking at reps and weight when you work out one to five would be sort of you know your, your training strength or your uh your absolute strength like how much weight can you ab- actually lift and then you know loosely speaking you could say eight to twelve reps could be a muscle building area loosely and then anywhere from 15 and more could be like endurance right so they've sort of evolved that in saying like well you know, if we're looking at muscle building, you can build muscle with any rep range now. It, it, it's not just eight to 12 reps. And you just have to do a certain quantity to be able to elicit that change that you're looking for, which is not what we're talking about today. However, a lot of research is saying like, well, strength training for running, you should look at five reps or less, and you should lift a weight that is challenging for that amount. You'll see websites talk about this. You'll see it on Podium Runner. You'll see it on a on a website here in Canada called Canadian Running, which is a web uh, magazine that I write for uh, every issue regularly. Um, and they'll report this sort of finding in the research. But I have to sort of add to that because runners, you shouldn't just go to a gym and pick up a weight that's challenging for five reps and not know how to do what you're supposed to do. And you should probably know how to warm up for that weight because when you when you go to a weight that is, you know, going to challenge you for five reps and maybe only five reps maybe six that that's a relatively heavy weight for someone right and if someone's not really sure on how to do a proper single leg squat or anything with good form that's asking a lot of that person so if you're a runner and you're going to these websites and you're reading these articles that say oh runners i should strength the research says i should strength train with five reps or less i would i would add to that that well you have to build up to that and you need a good coach that'll teach you good form first. And it might take you a few months of base building, just like you would when you're running to be able to build up to that five rep challenge of a deadlift or whatever you're going to be doing. So I can't remember what the initial question was, but I'm just going to say like, you know, starting off with eight to, oh, that, that's it. The, the amount of weight you need, you can get strong doing body weight exercises at home with just your body weight, right? You don't need extra fancy weights. You can challenge yourself in different ways by changing up the exercise, but initially you don't need to get too fancy. Just learn the basics first from a good coach or a good website or you know a good YouTube channel. And then from there you can progress to lifting heavier, which is where my point came in about lifting five reps, you know, five reps per set at a challenging weight. Yeah, absolutely. Because it, it can be very confusing, you know, trying to absorb all this information and and as not a coach. Um, mm-hmm. you know, asking an athlete to take in that resource and information, you absolutely draw the conclusion most people would. Oh, well, podium runner or wherever or whomever said five reps is the scheme I need to go with. So I'm going to go to mm-hmm. five. Well, some of, some of you out there are extremely strong and, and, f- you know, a deadlift for five reps is a lot. And if you're curving your back, if whatever it is, and it's not good mm-hmm. form, 
that's going to lead to injury really quickly and not like, Hey, Definitely. let me massage this out. Like you, you bulged a disc in your back, but like, you know, <laughs> that's not going to, that doesn't go well. And so again, you know, this isn't intended to just be like, Hey, hire us. That's not the intention of this podcast no, by any not. means, but this is where that result really starts to come in is that, you know, the number one thing that I, I think is most important in any gym isn't the weight rack. It's not, you know, even a bench, it's a mirror because you have to get mm. the form right first and address any of right those inadequate inadequacies that we're seeing in your movement patterns. Then we can start adding weight. But body totally. weight alone for a lot of people is challenging once the movement is done correctly. And this is where mm. I want all of our listeners to really kind of key into, you know, don't just look at this from an ego perspective because the ego is such a great driver in the weight room of like, oh, I added 10 pounds today. This is great. But how was your form? You know, was it, mm. was it, you know, those 10 reps when you bumped up 10 pounds, were those 10 really quality reps or were you really fighting those last three and your ego was really driving them up? That's, mm. that's what I think is most important here is that, you know, there's no award. Uh, uh, that when you leave the weight room of like who lifted the most weight today, you know, like mm. you own that personal discipline part of this. Um, so I'll get off my high horse of coaching. Um, mm. But I will, I will say there, um, you know, with that said, you know, you've talked about having some great resources and kind of what a program really encompasses. So I'm really curious to know, cause I've worked with a lot of different strength coaches, both in the sports performance world of like, contact sports and, you know, all the way into some really nerdy running side of things from your perspective, like what are the most important pieces? Like if you have a 60 minute session, kind of walk me through, and again, you don't have to go specifically into rep scheme, but like, you know, do you like to have, you know, something to start and then in the middle, is it normally X number of sets? And then you have some sort of structured cool down. How do you like to structure your, your sessions with runners? Yeah, so typically I'll get the runner to start with just a general warm up. So your general warm up could be a run, could be a jog, it could be five minutes, it could be ten. If if that's the day that you're supposed to get a morning run in, it could be a thirty minute shakeout. You know, whatever works in your schedule, that's kind of how I would like you to incorporate your strength training. Um, everyone has different schedules, so if like I said, if you need to start with your morning run before it, I wouldn't make the morning run too long. Like I wouldn't go, you know, forty five minutes to an hour your legs are going to be a bit tired and you don't want to go into the strength session too fatigued. So I would kind of cap that sort of pre uh, strength training run at maybe 25 minutes to half an hour, just as a, at an easy, super easy pace. So that'd be the first thing just to get the body warm. The next thing for that individual runner could be any form of soft tissue therapy that they would apply to themselves, whether it's a, a textured massage ball on the bottom of the foot, whether it's a stick or a foam roller to the thighs or the glute or a, a sphere in the piriformis uh, and or the calves or the soleus. So that part there, just sort of like touching all the muscles or focusing on a tender spot that you know is kind of a chronic issue for you, that would be sort of like the next thing right after their, right after their body's warm. And that can be anywhere from five to 10 minutes, just depends on you know how much time they need to devote to, to that depending on, you know, how they feel. The next thing that I would sort of get 
uh, runners to do would be a dynamic warm-up. So the dynamic warm-up would take sort of static stretching positions, but make them a little bit more dynamic because what we're trying to do with this portion of the workout is further prepare the runner for the challenges ahead in their workout. So we don't want to do any static stretching before a strength training session. It kind of has the opposite effect. It kind of cools us down. It doesn't really prepare us neurologically and uh, mentally for the workout that's to come. So if any static stretching should be done, I'll throw that in a separate session after their evening run or on a separate day completely. So with the dynamic warm-up, what I would do, and I do like this stretching technique, is uh, contract relax, or it's a PNF stretching. So for example, if someone has super tight hip flexors uh, or quad muscles, thigh muscles from running, I'll get them to do the stretch while they're, where they'll hold the stretch for 10 seconds, but then they'll activate the muscle for five seconds. And what they'll do is they'll alternate between a 10 second hold five second contraction and they'll repeat that without sort of recoiling or like re sort of uh, going out of the stretch they'll just sort of further get into the stretch and notice that neurological response and notice how that tight muscle loosens up uh, with that stretching technique so i apply this to the hip flexors quads you can do it to calves you can do it to the piriformis um, but it's it's a it's a better way for for me, in my opinion, to get more of a response from that dynamic warm up. Um, the other sort of side of dynamic warm up, it could be just things that are dynamic, such as leg swings or, um, you know, uh, we call it a mountain climber stretch or a Spider Man stretch, where you're, you're stretching the groin and the hip flexors at the same time. Um, but that that would be sort of like the next sort of section in the workout. That can be anywhere from five to ten minutes, depending on what you need to focus on. And then from there, we will get into uh, some of the small muscle group stuff. So this used to be called muscle activation. Um, we can call it that. Uh, I also call it, it's, it's still strength training. It's just sure. another way to call strength training. And this is where we, we might use bands to do specific glute work. We might do anywhere from X-band walks, glute bridges, uh, side plank clamshells, uh, anterior core challenges like dead bugs or front planks. Anything to kind of get the central core area strength trained or activated uh, prior to the meat and potatoes of the workout, which is what would be next. So before so, you before yeah, you jump ahead. into that, you had mentioned yeah. before, you know, like doing some some core activations. You mentioned it just very briefly, and I'm sure my listeners keyed into it. You you talked mm. about a specific methodology of contract relax. You said PNF. PNF stretching. So what is yeah. that? So so bring me into that for a little bit because I'm actually really curious about this because this is actually the first time I've kind of seen and this might be a crossover from where kinesiology and strength training kind of kiss each other um, mm. in, in those wor worlds. There, can you explain a little bit more for our listeners what that is? Uh, PNF is uh, proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation. Mm. It's just a stretching technique where we can get the muscle to actually lengthen. So for example, if you have a quad that is tight. So we'll just use a simple quad, your thigh muscle. So commonly, if you grab if you're standing and you grab your foot, you can do it now if you're listening to this. You can you're standing, you're you grab your foot, you bring it to your butt, and if you do this correctly, you might feel a stretch in your thigh. Okay. So instead of just holding that stretch for a minute and saying, oh yeah, it's done, I'll switch sides, moving on. Okay, next. I don't find that very good at eliciting a length change in that muscle if it's super tight. 
So the other method that I, I use to stretch the quad is a kneeling quad stretch. So what we'll do there is I'll have you kneel on a cushion. You can use an Airx pad or a couch cushion at home. And you put your other leg in front like you're in a lunge. You're kneeling on the cushion. I like to have a wall in front so you can hang on to something. So you're pushing into the wall with your hand so the wall's in front of you. And what you're gonna do with the leg that's behind you, that's kneeling, you're gonna carefully, if you have the mobility, first you would turn and grab your foot and bring it towards your butt, just like you would if you were standing. But picture yourself in this lunge position that you're in, resting on the floor, knee on the floor, front foot on the floor. And if you have the, the mobility to have that rotation and the ability to grab your foot with your hand, then to re-square up with the wall, you're gently trying to tilt your pelvis in a posterior direction. I cue that as tucking your butt in. You gently push your hip forward and you'll really feel a quad stretch more so than you would if you were standing. So this is my preferred way to stretch a quad muscle because it's more effective at targeting that muscle. So if we just hold that for a, a minute and then switch sides, you would say, okay, I can feel something stretching, great. However, if we wanna notice a, a very immediate change in length in that muscle, I would have them hold that stretch. Now I'll add one thing. Some people are super tight and they, they don't have the mobility to turn and grab their foot and bring it to their butt. So I'll use a yoga strap or a band that mm -hmm. they would wrap around their ankle that they would then grab with their hand and then they could have their arm lower because they don't have to grab their foot and bring it right up because they don't have that mobility yet. So either with your hand on your ankle a strap around your ankle and your hand on the strap. You're still squared up with the wall, pelvic tilt, bum in, and then you're pushing your hip forward gently to feel that stretch for 10 seconds. So you're letting the muscle relax. You're not pushing so hard that the muscle is so tight that you're preventing it from stretching by actually guarding. Mm. It's just a gentle stretch to feel length in the front of the thigh. And then before you move anything, you push your foot back down into your hand for five seconds. So this changes the stretch of the thigh into a contraction because now you're trying to extend your knee into your hand or into the strap. So you'll have that sensation change that the muscle is now not lengthening, but it's contracting. And the amount of contraction that you need to get this response to happen is only about a two out of 10. So if 10 out of 10 is your max effort and you're gonna break your hand if you kick too hard, you're gonna dial it way back and only do about a two out of 10. So you can feel that the stretch is now changed to a contraction. So you hold this for five seconds, and immediately after that five seconds, you relax the muscle, but you don't recoil. You don't go backwards. You go a little bit closer to the wall, because remember, you're facing the wall. You're going to stay in that pelvic tilt position and try to squeeze your butt to push your hips forward a teeny bit more. And if you do this correctly, you will notice that you can move a little bit closer than you could before that contraction. So you just repeat that again. You do another 10-second contraction. You do a five, sorry. You do a 10 second stretch, you do a five second contraction, you don't recoil, you relax immediately and you go a little bit closer to the wall again. So if you do this three to five times in a row without going backwards, you're just further, further, further going into the stretch or closer and closer, closer getting to the wall, you can notice that, wow, the thigh muscle actually changed length because it responded to this contract, relax, stretching technique where you get this nervous system response to relax the muscle. Hmm. Now, I know one of the main injuries, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm. This now makes me kind of think through an athlete that I have, um, who hmm. has who has some major issues with guarding. 
um, some muscular issues. And one of the big places, and I know our listeners are going to chew this one up, is IT band syndrome, right? Because it's either a glute issue, it's not normally a knee issue. Is this a methodology that we can utilize and leverage uh, this PNF methodology uh, to help get some relief with something like IT band syndrome, or is this only muscular? It's it's a bit tough. I find that the IT band, the name implies that it's a band of fascia, right? And it, it starts we off in the glute. We can't stretch the fascia, right? It's it's, it's no, it, it, it's not that's not happening. It's it's not a, a type of tissue that responds to that. Sort of, you know, you can't just go cross your leg over, stick your butt out and feel your, you know, the traditional IT band stretch. Right. You could try it and see if you get any relief. However, usually with IT band stuff, I, I find that the vastus lateralis is super tight because it's still connected with the, the, you know, the lateral side of the quad. So if you do this technique, you could try to push your hips slightly out to the side. So if you're doing that hip flexor stretch that I just described, instead of going into the wall straight and feeling your, say, your dominant rec fem thigh muscle stretching, if you gently push your hip out to the side, you could get maybe the lateral aspect of your thigh. So that could get vastus lateralis, that could get the fascia on the side um, and the lateral aspect of the thigh to lengthen, to potentially give you relief if that area is super tight. Mm um so that that's a, that's an option that's something you can try if it works for you you can do it um you can try doing this the traditional it band stretch where you're you cross your leg over you soften the knee and you stick your butt out to the side some people call it the banana stretch um you could try that technique it's a bit hard you would have to do an abduction contraction you'd have to push your leg out to activate the glute but again it's fascia that you're you're working with so this technique might not work for that um, that, that is a good question, but I, in my experience, I usually find that, uh, getting a, a sphere, a, a ball in the glute is effective for that. And then getting a foam roller or a stick on the lateral aspect of the thigh, um, and then focusing on mechanics when lifting so that we don't get excessive, excessive pronation at the foot or internal rotation at the thigh, causing that knee to go in to put that unwanted stress to that IT band. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I think, I think a lot of people are like, oh, I wonder if I can, you know, kind of shift and move it that way. So I, I would definitely love, and, and maybe we can, uh, in the podcast notes, if you've got any PNF resources or anything like that, send them on over. Cause those would be, I think, you know, something that would be a great addition, uh, either to a dynamic warm up And this whole conversation actually started because we were just about to kind of get into the meat and potatoes of how you structure structure a session. So I absolutely want right. to hear that. You know, do you find yourself as a guy that likes just two sets uh, and multiple exercises? Are you a three sets guy? Where do you find yourself? You know, if you've got an hour with somebody, where do you, you know, what would you recommend for runners even? Yeah. So I guess we're, we're in the part of the workout now where we are going to do the meat and potatoes of the workout. So some people would go to me and say, well, Jesus, you know, the warm up, the foam rolling, the dynamic warm up, the muscle activation, like that's a workout for me already, um, which for some people it is, and that's fine. But if we have a little bit more left in the tank and if we can do our multi-joint movement exercises, this is where we would do it. So with that sort of muscle activation section of the workout, we're looking at core, we're looking at small muscles. We might be looking at things that would need uh, special attention if you have issues. So this is where we would do sort of like your uni joint or one joint exercises to target a certain muscle. And, you know, having said that, if we look at 
sort of the big picture, if you look at bodybuilding, for example, I know we're going to touch on this for a second. So if someone wants to big uh, build bigger biceps, they would do bicep curls to elicit a change in that muscle, right? So that's a uni joint exercise, and we're looking at one muscle per exercise. That's the bicep curl. That's not just applicable to bodybuilders, and that's not just a, tra a training technique that builds muscle. It doesn't have to build muscle. So I just want people to appreciate that it's we, we take a little bit from each sort of category, bodybuilding, strength training for running, strength training for athletes, that in this sort of muscle activation section, it is there are many uni joint exercises that we're doing for someone, a runner, to get stronger glutes or get stronger glute meads or to get sort of uh, that neurological response to prepare them for single leg stance um, or to do an anterior core exercise. Um, I just want people to appreciate that, you know, bodybuilding isn't terrible and we do take some things from it and apply them to running. I'll, I'll jump over now to like the meat and potatoes. So just realize that I did say uni joint exercises or, or single joint. So now in the meat and potatoes of the workout, we would do our multi-joint exercises. So this would be exercises that involve multiple joints per exercise. For example, runners, obviously we need to train lower body the most, right? We, we don't, we're not really concerned with how many pushups you can do or what, if you can do chin-ups at all, or, you know, there might be some postural things we need to work on for runners like rows and, and different, uh, you know, shoulder mobility exercises or things that they have so that they have better arm carriage when they're running. So there's definitely some upper body stuff we might need to touch on in a runner, but the majority of the strength training is going to come hips down. So we categorize our lower body training into two sort of uh, categories. We would have squat-focused movement patterns and deadlift-focused movement patterns. So a squat pattern would involve bending at the hip, knee, and ankle to perform a squat-type pattern. So the, the position that most people would recognize as a squat would be sitting onto a toilet, sitting onto a chair, or an infant sitting all the way to the ankles. So that's a squat. That's when you would bend and bring the hips below the top of the knee or the top of the thigh. So for runners though, that's an option. We can do a two leg squat, uh, we call it bilateral. But for running, running is obviously always done on one leg. So to have the most specificity transferred to runners, I always start them with a split, split stance squat or a single leg squat. Now we don't need to go too fancy right away and do a single leg squat and see if they can do a pistol squat where they're sitting all the way to the floor and standing up. We need to kind of meet them where they are and perhaps doing just a split squat where you have one foot in front, one foot behind. It looks like a lunge, but I'm not stepping forward or backwards. If I have the appropriate stride length, I have a good you know, bend in the big toe on the rear foot, and I'm bringing my knee down and up, then that might be a good start because they need to control balance because they're standing in a split stance where the front foot is in front of the front hip and the rear foot is behind the other hip. So we're not standing in a, in a line. We're separated by your hips, right? So that don't feel like you need to do a lunge where one foot is directly in, in front of the other. That's just, it's not, it's not applicable. We don't run one foot in front in line on the other. So we wouldn't do that when we're training. So that would be sort of like where I would start someone if they've never been to a gym before would be a split stance, split squat. Uh, so that is a stationary lunge. You can also call it that. There's no stepping forward or back. It's just an up and down motion. The other thing that you alluded to at the beginning of the conversation was, can you control that front knee 
from excessively dropping medially. Mm -hmm. So if you look at someone from the front, so say if you're looking in a mirror, you're doing a split squat and your right leg's in front of you, you don't want to see your right knee drop excessively towards the left side, Yep. right? If we get a little bit of movement in and back, that's not the end of the world. It's not going to kill anyone. You're not going to hurt yourself. But if it's super excessive and you're seeing a big drift in and out with every rep, definitely something that might need to be cued and or something that needs to be sort of fixed with a prop or something if we need to look at a mobility issue that's causing that. The other category, if you will, is the hinge category, which is our deadlift category. So deadlifts are a very scary word for runners. It's very intimidating. I totally appreciate that. They're like, I don't want to do anything with the word dead in it, but a deadlift is a great exercise. So what we're doing with the deadlift is that we're bending through the same joints, hips, knees, and ankles, but to different degrees at each joint. So again, like I said, with a squat pattern, if it's bilateral, you're going to bring your hips below the top of the knee. If you're doing a bilateral deadlift, the hips are going to be well above the knee, but your torso angle is going to be more pitched over. So we're going to see more of a hinge pattern. So the hinge comes at the hip joint. So the hip joint is a ball and socket joint. There's many degrees of range of motion that you can do at the hip, but the range of motion that we're going to use in a deadlift is the hinging action at the hip where you would shoot your hips back and bend over while keeping a neutral spine. So that neutral spine is going to be that, that slight curve in your lower back, that slight curve in your upper back, but then moving where your spine is fixed, where most of the movement comes at your hips. So this could be a bilateral deadlift that you could do with a straight bar. It could be a bilateral deadlift that you could do with a trap bar, or it could be a single leg deadlift where you would do like a Romanian deadlift. And a Romanian deadlift, if you're doing a one leg Romanian, you would stand with your feet, hip width apart, you'd soften one knee, say you soften your left, you're gonna lift up your right foot in the air, and you're going to hinge at your hip and bow over. You're going to stick your chest out over the floor in front of your left foot. And remember your right foot is lifting up behind you and you're kind of creating uh, what I call a capital letter T. So you're gonna focus on reaching your right leg up and back. You wanna maintain a level hip position and you wanna have a neutral spine so that at the bottom of the movement, your back and your heel, they're all in line and your knee is soft like i said on your left foot so you have tension now developed in the hamstring on the left and this will trickle into the glute on the left and this is a running specific sort of challenge to the hip muscles the hip stabilizers because you're on one leg so again we're running on one leg and then we're also going to challenge that hamstring in that posture to then stand us up and then now we're in that single leg Romanian. So if that's not too much information, we have our squats, we have our deadlifts, and then we have our more running specific squats, which, which would be our split stance or single leg squats, and then our more running specific hip hinge movements, which one example is our single leg Romanian deadlift. Absolutely. And anybody that's done like this single leg Romanian deadlift, it's, it's actually a very difficult movement. Um, and it's one of those that, you know, especially when people start to integrate weight, they have this desire to want to go below mid shin sometimes and they really want that mm. weight to touch the floor and you don't, yeah. you don't always have to. And the biggest thing again is, is what we talked about earlier on is that it's a control movement. It's, it's, it's not about just getting and bending over and getting into that T position. I also like to make sure that I'm cueing the up part of this and really making sure that, you know, 
it depends on what we're trying to to get out of the movement but being able to also control your way out of the movement as much as you're controlling into the movement both are equally important but i i love that this has a these these are some movements that we'll we do quite a quite often uh in the weight yeah. room here and they're, they're they're truly some of the best movements you can do if i had to do say what are the two movements that you'd give a runner and assess them of you know how well they they can move their body, how good of a mover they are. Because to me, an athlete is is a good mover. That's an athlete, someone mm-hmm. that can move well. Uh, you know, both both in, in that sagittal plane, but also transverse and everything like that. Like, I also like to really challenge my runners in a transverse way, or excuse me, in a lateral way, in the lateral aspect, mm-hmm. and not just bands. And we could talk for hours about all the different ways we can solve problems with athletes. But I think you hit on the two most important ones. For, for runners. And I, I really think this is a r- really valuable one. Um, I will put in the show notes. Um, I'm sure John, Eric, you've got uh, some videos for both of those movements that I can, uh, I can key into there. Um, yeah, sure. For yeah. Our athletes. Um, so I wanted to kind of shift things a little bit because I, I know we talked the meat and potatoes. I'm going to guess that cool down for you is probably kind of moving again out of out of that, that meat and potatoes and making sure that we're kind of lining the body up for, for the next day's, you know, activities, whether that's a workout, you know, or even a, just a, an easy aerobic run. Um, is that anything special that you like to integrate into, into your cool down? Um, I'll just add real quick. I didn't really comment on your other question, which is how many sets and reps. So for example, if someone's brand new, to strength training that never worked out before, you know, a a nice general way to kind of like get into it would be anywhere from two to four sets of eight to 12. So again, runners, let's not get locked into that. You know, you have to do five reps because we're just learning this right now. Right. Right. And if we want to learn movement quality, we need to do a bit more than five reps to learn the quality. However, I'll also add sometimes if the movement is very difficult for someone, I might break it up into three mini sets of five. So we're still doing our five, but I might have you do five reps on one side, five reps on the other, and then go back and forth for three sets that are kind of like just done right after the other. So that still gives us a total of 15 reps per set, but you did three sets, three mini sets of five. Hmm. Because sometimes if I guess if, if I give someone 15 reps, the first five might look really good. The next five might be kind of crappy and the last five, they're just super tired and their balance is all over the place and it doesn't look good at all. So there's not really a point in just doing 15 for the sake of 15. If that's what the program calls for, we have to, again, like you said, make sure that the movement quality is there. So to keep the quality up, I might make them do three mini sets of five. If they're, if they're learning something for the first time. Um, But that, that, that would sort of make up the meat and potatoes and we could do, two movements per workout we could do like two squat variations or we could throw that in with the muscle activation part if we want to be really efficient and like i said earlier we could also throw that in with a row or some sort of postural exercise which maybe could be a totally different podcast where we're talking about which upper body exercises should runners do Um, and then we would do the same for your single leg romanian we could combine that maybe with another hip challenging exercise and maybe a single leg calf raise or something where they need to really focus on you know a different muscle so that their hip movement pattern can sort of have a rest while they do something different so i like being efficient with runners i don't like them doing the same exercise for 
you know, three sets in a row before they do the next exercise. I like to be efficient with them because they don't want to be there all day. They want to get their workout done, get the most out of it, and then, you know, recover for their next bout of exercise, which would be their run. So after their meat and potatoes uh, part of the workout, we could definitely go into the cool down, which could reflect anything we did in the warm up. So we could look at more soft tissue work if something needs a little bit more attention. It could be if they go to a facility that allows it, maybe they could go right to their chiro. Maybe they could go right to their physio. Maybe they could go right to their dry needling because their strength workout's done, which is a very good time to then do your therapy or your treatment if something is going on. Um, there could be a run uh, before that treatment because you don't want to do a run right after the treatment. You'd want to have that and let the effects sort of take place as you recover for your next bout of exercise, whether that's later in the day or, you know, tomorrow morning. Um, but that's kind of what the cool down would look like. It would just reflect anything that needs attention that the warm up sort of gave its attention to. No, I love that. I love that. And as you mentioned, you know, we, we will have to absolutely get, get some more podcasts together. I'm really loving, um, kind of this variability here because there is, I, we do, we do a lot of, you know, dynamic rows, um, you know, in plank position or anything like that, that oh, I totally. really help with that posture because, um, it's been one of my biggest focuses lately in terms of even my own thinking and research as I work with athletes on running form is yes, we are worried about how you impact the ground, but what's happening above the waist can absolutely impact how you're going to either reach and heel strike, or if that mm. posture is nice and tall and that chest is up and our gaze is in the right way. And we have a good forward full body lean versus just a hip mm. hinge lean. That's going to yeah. change how we run. It's going to change our comfort when we run as well and how we feel when we're running. It's going to change how we breathe. So many impacts go into that. So many. That aren't just about being able to hold a plank for 30 seconds or 60 seconds. Totally. Um, you know, I, and I, I do want to be conscious. We do. I love to keep our, our, I know our listeners love about an hour and we are okay. right at that mark. And so what I would love, wow. love okay. us to do is one, we're going to have to get back together because I know that, you know, I, I, I shared some ideas with you about where I wanted to go with this. And, you know, I want, I want you to come back because I want to dial in about where do we kind of shift our thinking about strength training when we move from more of like our power events, like 5k. And again, it's not yeah. even a mile or 800, which again, on the track lifting really becomes, if you're not lifting and you're trying to race the 800 of the mile, um, yeah. you, you're definitely leaving money on the table. When you get into the 5k and the 10k, it's about being able to, you know, it changes, you know, with the 800 in the mile, it's about having good muscular power. And we can talk a little bit about adding mass there. And that's an okay thing. Mm -hmm. When we move into the 5k and the 10k, it's about how do we do things in the weight room that allow us to not break down our form towards our threshold. And then there, where does the half marathon and the marathon? And then if we go really far off into the spectrum of like ultra endurance, hundred miles, 200 mile events, multi-day things, does it make sense for those athletes to be in the weight room? And we'll, we'll have to answer those questions and on into the future. But what I wanted to make sure that we had time to do today, because you've been a huge resource. I'm actually like after this, going to go dive into some PNF stuff and may ask for a couple resources from you because I'm going to nerd out on this. It's super fun. Um, I want people to be able to find you because I think probably a couple people went, this is a guy I want to follow. I want to learn more about it. I know you've got an active YouTube. Um, where else can we find you? 
Yeah. So my company is JK Conditioning. So my wife and I own this company, JK Conditioning. Um, but my running specific stuff, you can find that on our YouTube channel at uh, youtube.com forward slash stronger runner. So our YouTube runner uh, page is stronger runner and strongerrunner.com is my other website, but it's under construction. So you won't be able to go oh. to it right now, but uh, we're working on it. I have a, a, great, a great web guy and we're trying to put some resources together. Um, so you'll just sort of have to bookmark it for now, but I have almost a hundred videos on YouTube that are dedicated towards making you a stronger runner. Um, I'm a regular contributor to Canadian running. So if you're from Canada and you're listening to this, you can find me in every issue. I write for the body work section. So I write a workout per issue that, you know, deals with different issues or just full body workouts right now over the past year because of the pandemic. We've been working on a specific uh, exercise tool that a runner can use by itself at their home and do a workout with that. That would be tailored to running and their running. So that's kind of what we've been working on uh, with Canadian Running over the past year. I'm a regular contributor to their sister publication, Triathlon Magazine Canada. So I also write workouts for them. And then lastly, like you said, I'm a regular contributor to PodiumRunner.com. So if you go to PodiumRunner.com, or maybe you can put this in the show notes where my article archive uh, would be there. And I, I think there's, I don't know, I think there's 40 articles there that I've written for them uh, over the past few years. Um, they've been a really good uh place to work with for me because they they appreciate my sort of perspective on strength training for runners and uh, they always invite me back so I'm really grateful to write for them well we'll have to continue on that uh, history of inviting you back I'm, I've, I've loved having you on I know we could probably go for another hour or two hours just kind of talking about yeah, pretty easy. hey I love doing this do you love you know and and that would yeah. be super super easy but John, I, I just want to say thanks for, for coming on today. And I look forward to uh, sharing some of these resources in the show notes. Thanks, Andrew. It was a pleasure. And uh, I look forward to the next one. Absolutely.